Hello, and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode, we spoke to Kylie Reid, the best-selling author of Such a Fun Age. We talked with Kylie about her experience of creative writing education, the challenges of addressing race and class in fiction, and the process of TV adaptation of her work. It's a great episode. We hope you enjoy it. Welcome, Kylie, to Always Take Notes. Thank you for squeezing us into what is a very busy promotional schedule here in in the UK. Um, Apologies, by the way, to listeners in the right on cue, the drilling in the background. (laughs) Um, So we can't really do anything about that. But uh, we'd like to ask you about the Iowa Writers Workshop. Absolutely. What made you want to kind of pursue that route as a way into into your publishing career? Uh, I was working as a receptionist at the time and... I was writing every Friday night and during lunch breaks and just feeling like my writing was not getting off the ground the way that I wanted it to. And I think that MFA programs are a great way to have that time. I was really looking for the time and I also was interested in teaching and so that was a big pull as well. And so I applied two years in a row. I got rejected from a lot of schools in the first year and in the second year I got into the iWriters Workshop and that's really where a lot of this novel took off. And can we talk if... um about some of the experience that you drew the material from. So you're, you worked as a babysitter yourself for, for six years, right? Yeah, I did. And how did that fit? That was pre-Iowa, was it? It was. Yeah, I was a nanny from when I was 20 to 26. And there are so many autofiction writers that are so talented and I really admire. I don't love writing about myself, but I love being inspired by the environment. And I felt like I really knew what it was like to work in someone else's house and find you know children's belongings in your purse and also to be without health insurance and be in a financially precarious situation and so it's such a rip rich opportunity um, to write about in terms of awkwardness and themes of ownership and also just really great drama i think you've said in previous interviews that when you were rejected from i think it was nine places that's it yeah (laughs) um you kind of went away wrote most of what I think is now such a fun age and then kind of went back with your application saying this is what I write about yes accept me if you want but this is what I'm going to do yeah um how helpful did you find it once you were in the kind of whole workshopping process having people dissect what you'd done and analyze and give you feedback I am a big proponent of the workshop process um I think whether you have a good workshop or a bad one, it's still the best ones are the ones where you're not even being workshopped, but you end up writing notes down because someone else gets a note and you think, oh my gosh, like, I do that too. Let me make sure I don't do that in the future. Uh, with this novel, I had a great novel workshop where there were 10 novels that we were reading one a week. And it was wonderful to see the parts that people were really drawn to and certain parts. What I think what a workshop is best at is when everyone says this chapter isn't working, you know, you have to, to correct it. And so I probably used about 85% of the notes that were given to me. And had your interest in writing, was that longstanding? Because you'd studied acting mm-hmm. originally, right? How had those two aspirations set together? I had been writing since I was little, but I always thought of it as more of a hobby for so long. Um, but I was reading tons and tons of scripts in graduate school. And I think that focusing on the rhythm and patterns of dialogue definitely inspired a lot of my writing. Um, I ended up writing a lot of monologues. I I feel like I was writing about character in class before I knew that's exactly what I was doing. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's, I guess that probably informed how you wrote dialogue in the book. I mean, there's a lot of kind of quick fire dialogue between characters. Did you find that was easier to do than kind of scene setting or exposition? Uh, It's a little bit of both, but I do find that I'm inspired 
buy a scene through dialogue first and sometimes I'll write dialogue first and then do a bunch of editing and sometimes you know one sentence stands out or sometimes a whole thing stands out but I'm usually inspired by things that people say and how they say it so that's usually my starting point and can we talk a bit more about the the whole workshop and the MFA yeah. experience because we have it in this country but to a less established extent so I was one of the most celebrated of these programs right and it's a it's a one-year it's a two-year two year yeah. so could you tell us a bit about how that works how big is the peer group how is it taught what element of contact time you know just just really to kind of lift the lid on how that works from a student perspective so the IO writers workshop is the founding home of the workshop process and that is when a student or usually two students turn in work the week before everyone reads it writes notes on the manuscript and then writes a letter to that person and then you go to your next workshop and the writer stays silent while everyone else discusses their work sometimes for an hour with my novel it was three hours it's a very long time while the writer is not allowed to say anything it's not a place where you can say oh I was going to change that or you read it wrong you have to really accept all the notes given to you and so pretty much every other MFA program does a version of that workshop style there are 25 students in each year for uh, 25 for fiction, 25 for poetry, and it's a two-year program, but you do have the opportunity to stay and teach in your third year if you're finishing up a project. And so you end up having four teachers while you're there. Workshops are usually from seven to 12 students about. Um, and it, it it was a really great opportunity for me. It was a place where I could figure out what was in my head and have time to make those things work. And you mentioned that you were kind of drawn to the teaching aspect of it mm-hmm. as well why why was that I love teaching I mean I worked with children for so long and I taught preschoolers which sometimes is not that different from teaching undergrads as well um, so I taught creative writing workshops um, and I love using short stories to teach and the students that I re- was teaching are students who are not writers who just want an art credit but I really love that demographic a lot of them think that they can't have an opinion on art and literature and a lot of them come out of it having very big opinions and so it was great I've had an experience from, of that workshopping process in, in both the context of a, a residency situation and also at, at university. So I, I went to Columbia for journalism. Uh-huh. And I found it was very different in that at a, in a residency, I found it a fantastic experience. In, primarily, I think, because everyone left their ego at the door mm-hmm. and everyone was collaborative. And also, I think, because everyone was a practitioner, right? So it was, it was quite a select environment. I found that it may also be an age gap, but I remember doing it in my early 20s in a in a university context and I think and I was I'm sure guilty of this to the extent there was more kind of posturing there was mm-hmm. like people hadn't there was more ego in the room probably because there was more insecurity and I wonder I was obviously very select but it's also in that academic context so how did you between those those two kind of poles of like good workshop bad workshop how did you feel it sat does that make sense that makes total sense and I had good workshops and bad workshops um I think Iowa really solidified for me that the difference in workshop has to do with one unfortunate, I mean, it's like a, a workplace. If you have one bad egg, it can give the energy a really toxic environment. And if there's a lot of posturing as well with writing and an opinion that high art looks a certain way, then I think that the room suffers for it. The workshop I had with Paul Harding for this novel, he came in immediately saying, 
you know, everyone's work fix, sits on some X, Y axis of literary and genre, and it's all not super clear, and we have to meet it where it's at and say what is the best that this piece could look like where it's at. And so we had science fiction. We had a book, like an epic novel based in Africa. We had my book. We had another one that was a really kooky Western where John Wayne reappeared as a ghost. I think the fact that we had so many different types of writing made that environment really wonderful and beneficial to everyone. Um, but yeah, sometimes workshop can be a place where people just want to say something that they think is brilliant in front of a professor and, and it goes nowhere. And I think that coming out of it, the worst workshops were not the ones where my piece got torn apart. It was where I left with nothing to change. Um, I love leaving feeling like, oh my gosh, I want to go home right now and just change all these things because it makes sense now. So yeah, I totally, totally understand that. Kind of like Q&A format where someone just makes a comment yes. rather than asks a question. <laughs> yes, like, exactly. Hey, have you done that? Yeah. Um, in terms of, I mean, you mentioned personal finance is a big part of the um, book um, and you mentioned it earlier. I wondered if we could talk about the, the finances of doing the um, the writer's workshop. Yeah. Um, because I, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's like more than more than four thousand dollars a term, and it's like two years. Oh, that's that. so interesting. Okay, so I have so much to say about the finances of that book program. Go ahead. Um, so, in the past. I think 50 years or so many MFA programs have popped up and some of them put you into tremendous debt and some of them are fully funded. I am on the side that believes that you should not get an MFA unless you are not going into debt doing that. The Editors Workshop does fund every student there to go to school there and teach. And so I love transparency in numbers. I got $16,000 a year for two, uh, two years and I had two part-time jobs to supplement that as well. And so... I feel that I wouldn't have had a novel right now if I didn't have those fellowships. Um, and I was not in a position to go somewhere and take out loans to pay back later, potentially, if you know I had a book or not. Yeah. We've had various people from within the creative writing teaching community on, so from uh, schools here, from Faber runs a school here in London, and Curtis Brown. And a question we've put to them, they, they make a lot of play about the number of publishing deals and so forth that they've had from their cohort of students coming through. Mm -hmm. So from, from your cohort at Iowa, you've obviously had this huge breakout success. Um, how, what fraction of the others have, have got book deals? So. I was actually the fifth person in my class to get a book deal. Out of how I many? had a, of 25. Right. I had a very ambitious class, but that was rare. That was not the case for many classes above that, um, which is something that I love about writing, that it's not like being a gymnast in your prime years, you know, 16 and that's it. Um, I think that a lot of people go there and make a body of work that they return to later. I was going in at 30 years old and I had a lot of work done, but some people are 22 and it's kind of an extension of undergrad and they kind of party for two years and I respect that side too. Um, but I was in a different place where I was ready to start publishing. Mm -hmm. And did they, is the focus mostly on the work itself or did they equip you with the kind of business side of, of the profession as well? It's mostly on the work itself, and I am very interested. I'm obviously, you know, on the older side of, of the range that was there in my class, and so I would have loved to learn more about the business side, which I think is so fascinating, um, especially because the range in which you as a writer can get paid is so drastic that it's nice to know those things. Um, Iowa does bring in agents, and that's how I met my agent, and she was hugely beneficial to showing me about the business of writing. The other criticism, I suppose, it's 
presented at those programs, they've had a kind of leavening effect on American fiction. There's a mm. kind of certain Chandler-esque realism or whatever that has been promulgated through the, the system. Did you feel ever that you were being steered to write in a certain way or in a way that you were comfortable or not comfortable with through that system? That's a great question. Um, I definitely had teachers who only sincerely responded to certain types of work and topics and some of those were not mine and I think that having other teachers who are wonderful I had Jess Walter who's incredible his entire philosophy is right to your obsessions and so I think that I had some teachers who you know unfortunately couldn't cater to to what I wanted but some did and in a workshop you just take the best that you can and some semesters are better than others I think it's so interesting uh, that people have seen the flattening of, of writing in the MFA programs. And I think that that can happen, which is why I'm a huge proponent for going to MFA programs later when you come in being really set on what you're writing. And so you don't get led into paths that you don't want to be on. You can't get bullied out. Of yeah, exactly. What sorts of topics did they respond better to? Is it? Oh, my goodness. I mean, pastoral, bucolic, fragmented highly poetic language where you know someone's grandfather's watch means the world and i don't <laughs> definitely not anything with the very current cultural references but i wouldn't say that about everyone i would say that about you know a teacher here or there and the fact that it is a bigger program in some ways some programs only have about four people you can find your readers very easily and i left with three women who edited this novel with me heavily and i'm so grateful for that so with um novelists we've had on the show a perennial point that comes up is how they build their work so whether they and, and the definition is, is is bifurcated between plotter and plunger those are the terms we've had so a plotter is there with their post-it notes on the wall and the whole structure of the book laid out beforehand and the plunger um dives in I love and that. and you know we've had people who are extremely accomplished uh, who've taken both approaches and and so could you could you lift it maybe not just on that but on your whole technique like what is your approach for structuring a novel what is your writing program what is your day like re we're really interested in the real nuts and bolts of this okay i'm gonna say it straight away i'm not a plunger i'm a plotter myself i start with character i have an idea of the types of people that i want and like for this book i kind of did uh these diary entries that never made it into the novel it's just a way of me getting to know these characters and then i am all about the listing the plotting uh drawing on things to figure out what's going to happen and when but i will say as a ride or die plotter if things are going exactly the way that i wrote them out i know that it's not going well there has to be some change and I'm constantly learning okay this person actually wouldn't do this here they would do this here so if my I write everything out but if my list is going according to plan I know that something's wrong you want some kind of serendipity yeah um, do you have a kind of set routine I know that you wrote quite a lot of the book in coffee shops but do you keep kind of office hours uh, so when I first started writing this one, I did pretty much keep office hours, which was every morning for about three hours, I would write at a coffee shop, and then I would do it again for about an hour and a half in the afternoon. But as soon as I have a body of work, I'll work all day for like eight to 10 hours or so. Um, I love having a routine. My favorite days are where I go to the gym in the morning, and then I write for about three to four hours. And sometimes it's not writing. Sometimes it's just me staring into space or reading and figuring out 
what I want to write, but no phone, no music is allowed. It has to be just writing space. Um, I am on tour right now, which is putting a bit of a damper under these things, but I can't wait to get back to regular schedule. And so how was the the mechanics of selling the book? So you, you met your agent at Iowa. Mm-hmm. What, if you could tell us what stage was the manuscript at that point? Yeah. And then how did it go through, again, we just really try and lift the lid on this, like getting uh, getting the manuscript worked up, the distribution, the, the deal, how did all that fit? Right. I met with every agent that they brought into Iowa the first year, which was six agents. And my agent was the first one that I met with. And so I gave her a short story instead and said I was working on a novel. And it's funny because she's actually the only agent that didn't get back to me saying that they were interested in writing more. And so when someone says no, I get a little bit, okay, wait, why did they say no? So I ended up querying uh, 14 agents altogether. Um, eight asked for representation and then I interviewed all of them and Claudia Ballard from WME stood out from the very beginning so we signed together at that point the manuscript was done when she read it it was completed and so she and I then worked on it together for about six weeks uh, from really big things like the ending which we rewrote again twice together to little things um, like fixing tiny moments, bringing a character in or out where they needed it to be. So that was a lot of work uh, for about six weeks. And then we sent the novel out, and 10 editors came back saying they would like to chat, kind of the same process of talking to people and figuring out what they would want to change, what they wouldn't want to change, and then we sold it 10 days later. And um, what influenced your decision to choose your agent? Was it partic- like what they thought you would get for the manuscript, or was it... Um just how you got on with them was that what kind of went into that decision it is kind of like dating in that there is just an energy about a person um and their communication style is really important to me someone who's going to get back to me quickly i'm a bit of an anxious writer and i need to know someone's going to be there but the biggest thing was her vision for the novel and the fact that some agents would say it's perfect the way it is and some would say we need to change everything and she was very much in the middle and every edit that she asked that we could change, I agreed with. And so that whole process of saying, where do you see this novel going and how do you think it's going to get better is so important. Someone's kind of saying, this is how I would market your novel. And their pitch for your novel is really important as well. And the people, one question that was really important to ask was who do you see this sitting next to on the shelf Um, and seeing how they saw your writing. Who did you see it sitting next to? She said, who did she say? She said... Like a Zadie Smith, Curtis Sittenfeld, Issa Rae combination, I think okay. is what she said. Yeah. And on those those discarded endings, um, I was wondering what was in them. And I was wondering, was was there one in which Kelly and Amira got together? They never did. Okay, they so what was did. in what were in the ones that were on the <laughs> cutting there shop floor? There was one on the cutting top floor where we go uh, 10 years in the future and see Briar for a second. And I think it was just too jarring to go that far in the future. I think keeping it more immediate made more sense. Uh, And the good thing is now with the film adaptation, there are actually scenes that got cut, but I think will fit into the adaptation, which is nice. This episode of Always Take Notes is supported by Clean Prose, London's first co-working space designed specifically for writers. Based over three stories in Shoreditch in the east of the city, Clean Prose's mission is to provide writers of all stripes, from novelists to playwrights, with a space and a community designed especially for them. To foster strong connections, Clean Prose offers a professional network that many writers miss when they work alone at home, at a library or in a noisy cafe. 
The ground floor is an event space, offering workshops, talks from experts and book launches. The first floor is an open plan common room. It is a space for writers to connect, collaborate, drink coffee and develop their professional networks within the publishing, TV, film and other creative industries. The second floor is a totally quiet space in which to concentrate and write, with private desks, lockers and an extensive book collection. To find out more, go to cleanprose.co.uk. Always take notes, listeners, are eligible for a five-day pass to Clean Prose. To redeem this offer, please email write at cleanprose.co.uk with the subject line ATN-Welcome5. So the Lena Wade signed the rights to your book right. before it was published, six months before it was published, is that right? I think it was a year or so. Yeah. Um, yeah. And how, and you're involved in the script. Yeah, so. I'll be executive producing. I'm so really how excited. does that process work as well? Because I know lots of people, I mean, novelists still believe that selling the TV and film rights is the best thing and then the next best thing and then actually making it. So right. yeah, could you tell our listeners a little bit about that whole process of selling the rights and how yeah. it's pretty unusual that you're involved in the script is that right is that fair to say that's what I've heard this is also my first time so I'm just learning too um when we sold it there was film interest from one company and that's when my agent set me up with my now film agent who's lovely and she said do you want to be a part of this and I said yes and it's really important that this is in the hands of some people of color as well and so we got together and made a list of people that we would like to see it with pitched it to them a few came back and then we went to land with Lena uh, and so it feels kind of like a workshop where we're all actually working on the same piece and that you know that ego and pretension is not there which is wonderful Um, I don't want to be too precious about how we do the adaptation because my favorite adaptations are ones that are a bit different from the book. And so it's a balance of me trusting that they know their medium better than I do. But also I created these characters and so far it's been a really lovely process. So a rule of the podcast is we always ask about money in as much detail as possible. Now you have to answer none of these questions if you don't want to. Ooh, I'm but, so intrigued. But we are going to ask them. Um, so how much <laughs> How much were you paid for the novel? Oh my, I have to pass. Not because I don't want to, but because I would get my editors in trouble with how much they offer to Can you give people. a classic publishing industry euphemism, like high six figures or something like that? <laughs> I don't know if, I don't want to get in trouble. Okay. No, can I just say that I really respect that you asked though, because I think these things are so interesting and I wish that publishers marketplace would just make these things known, but I don't want to get in trouble. No, no, that's fine. We're not, we're not going to force you, but we are going to ask. And so exactly, so how much did you get paid for the TV? Oh, it's a little bit. Maybe it's a kind of like factor of, how did it relate? To yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh. Can, can you answer TV advance? Can you give the ratio between the TV yeah. advance and the book advance? There's so many different types. There's your option price. There's the price you get for writing the script. And the big there's... check is principal, like principal <laughs> photography day one, right? Uh, no, I wish. Uh, you don't, can, if you just give us the ratio between all of them. The you, don't, you don't have to give us any specifics. Okay, film to book, I think it's like... Uh, one to seven or so. Yeah, and I don't know if any of these numbers are normal or not. Uh, yeah, this is my first time doing all this. <laughs> um, in terms of sales, how much did... Sorry, we're not going to keep hounding you. No, I, I actually really do like the money questions, <laughs> even though I can't answer them. <laughs> I had read that you didn't mind talking about I love answer. talking about it, yeah. Um, your book was picked by Reese Witherspoon for her book club. How much does something like that make a difference to... Oh, it's huge. Yeah. Huge, huge difference. Uh, 
Reese Witherspoon has this amazing platform and she just champions women and storytelling in a way that people who don't find themselves as readers will always pick up a Reese Witherspoon book. And I was so grateful for all of that. Did you, um, I guess you sold the rights before uh, she picked it, obviously, but um, oh, she has her production company. Did she express an interest in? No, she didn't. No. I know. <laughs> I do. I do admire her very much, though. But no, she didn't. Yeah. In terms of you mentioned, you know, where this would fit on the shelf, and you mentioned Curtis Sittenfield and Zadie Smith. So in terms of how it looks, like I have a, a white teeth. Now it's, it's not a. It's like an old edition from when it came out, and I've got a. I've got prep. I think. Uh-huh. They look quite different to that in they terms do. of like you know, there's no pink on the cover, stuff like that. That's so funny. How do you feel about how the way like this has been presented and kind of where it's being marketed and pushed for that kind of thing? I, now I'm really curious about the prep cover in it's here. Green, I oh, think. But, but but I got it secondhand. It might be an American edition. And it's, okay. I, I think it's. I'm not I think a, it's no, pink no, no, no. It's sister. State. It's sisterland that I've got. Okay. So it's not prep. In the states, um, I think it has pink font with the green bell. It was such an iconic looking cover. I remember being 19 and being very thrilled by it. Um, I'm really happy with what we did. My biggest concern was, you know, I'm a debut author. No one knows who I am, and I want an eye-catching cover. Uh, the biggest thing was to have a cover that's smart but not intimidating. I think I have a really accessible style and I wanted to get in, into as many hands as possible. And so there's you know there's a part of me that wants it to look like, you know, the minimalist design I would want my coffee table to look like, but I have to remember when it comes to getting it into the most hands. I love that people say I saw the cover and I grabbed it. And so I'm thrilled with how it turned out. And in terms of um making the book itself accessible you've talked about combining the kind of not hot button but the the issues of race and white privilege and all of that stuff with a really entertaining style how did you go about kind of achieving that was it a lot of editing or did it just kind of come naturally so much editing so so much editing I feel like uh there was so much I wanted to accomplish with the style in that one, I think children are really funny, and so I wanted to highlight how children are just naturally um, humorous little people. But two, I think that when it comes to race and class, we're constantly cracking a joke to make things feel a little bit better. And so I wanted that air to keep its way into the writing. Um, I also, I mean, there's very obviously satirical points in this novel of making fun of certain, you know, philosophies of liberalism or feminism or allyship and so uh, the first goal is always to tell an entertaining story and I like to laugh when I'm writing. Was the the voice and the way it's written in the third person did you feel that that was crucial to this because you weren't because you could move between sides as it were or like was that was was there ever a version of this that had first person moments you mentioned yeah. the, the stuff that the letters for example yeah how did you you know in terms of the way you wanted to address the subject matter how did the way it's structured and the way the voices work as the novel was being edited and produced how did that that's a great question um i did start with first person with alix especially and i feel that just as a writer my tendency towards a really close third is just where i shine the most um I feel that uh, it takes a really skilled author to have, you know, I, I, I the entire time. And there's authors like uh, Hallie Butler and Sally Rooney who do that really brilliantly. I like having a little bit of a distance between me and, and my character. And I feel like it's so fun for me to show their judgments through a third person close uh, narration. I don't think I'll ever do omniscience. It's just not for me. Yeah. 
Um, I'm glad you mentioned Sally Rooney because one thing I noticed when I was reading the reviews of the book is that it came up a lot, the comparison. How helpful is that sort of comparison? That's such a good question. Well, I loved conversations with friends so much. I I read the whole thing on a plane to Australia and I was just so charmed by it. I think we have incredibly different styles though. So I think it's kind of a funny comparison. Um, I think we both write about the internet and that's about as far as it goes. Um, And so I don't know if it's helpful or not to make those comparisons. It kind of makes it seem like there's only room for a few writers writing about very different topics which is kind of limiting but i'm at least glad that she's a talented person that i've been compared to so that helps it seemed to me reading the novel that a big thread running who through here was was honesty and kind of authenticity between people what they say and what they do and i thought interesting with with alex it seemed that you know her her dishonesty almost is such a thread down to her name you know down that she mm-hmm. she lies to other people but she also lies to herself like with the the note at the end and right. and where it's found and i was wondering were you and obviously she has this kind of Instagram influencer thing. Do you feel you were kind of taking a broader swipe, might be the wrong word, but like at a slice of culture, you know, that there, that people like influencer culture and, and that kind of thing. Was that something you wanted to, to wrestle with? That's so funny because I feel like uh, the thing that I was really wrestling with is the reason why she feels like she has to hide these things. Um, Alex, I feel, is a perfect victim of late capitalism in that she feels like, well, I'm not working, so who am I? And I have to hide who I am because, um, you know, my phone's not ringing, so I don't know who I am. And she's in this position where childcare is completely up to her. Her husband is nowhere near go, like any of these decisions. And I think that the influencer culture is an easy target, but I also think that we're all always branding ourselves from where we send our kids to school to conspicuous consumption to where we eat to the words that we use to describe things um sometimes i feel like alex is an easy target because she's a white person on instagram but that that's part of the reason why i wanted to highlight her strengths of being a really good friend she can be a really good mom and she's also really lonely so could you talk a bit about the different responses that you've had to the character of alex so many. Um, I've had a lot of women um, who've obviously very, just finished the book come to my readings and they're really not ready to grapple with those things and they're a bit defensive and saying she's trying as hard as she can. And I understand that, but I also have had people say, especially white women say, this woman's a monster. But for everyone who says that she's a monster, I've had black women say, I know this woman. I work with this woman. I do a carpool with this woman. Um, I've met so many people like this. Um, I think that she's a bit polarizing to people because she is well-intentioned. But I think that people have a hard time contending with the fact that well-intentioned people can be really harmful as well. Kind of following from Rachel's question, do you see, you know, there's this this strand in the book about, yeah, white people doing pretty awkward and slightly, um, you know, distasteful stuff in their interaction with black people out of supposed good intention. Do you see any crossover with, you know, how the book has been perceived on publication and that thread that you were kind of satirizing? Um, I think that I'm always intrigued uh, when people say this book is attacking white saviorism because that is not what I ever set out to do mm. in a book. I always start with characters. I think as soon as you go t- towards symbolism and say, I'm going to talk about race or slavery or, or classism, it, it, for me, it just doesn't work. And so 
it's easy to look at my book and say, oh, this is a comment on, you know, saviorism. But for me personally, I think this is a book about people. And I think as soon as you're giving lessons, it kind of takes away from the magic of fiction. Mm, I, I found a quote that said, uh, there wasn't an agenda to address systemic racism, but there was an agenda to tell the truth. Absolutely. Just, I just wanted to talk about these three people and how, and how much of a mess they caused together. Yeah. You say that your interest is in class and race. Um, it's probably not the right way of phrasing it, but are you worried about being pigeonholed in any way? Those are obviously two massive subjects. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's not an issue in terms of the range of things you can write about, but do you think there's still a perception within the publishing industry that that's a narrow thing to write about? Uh, I think that before writing this novel, I would have worried about that for my second one. But now I kind of looking back at my like, you know, small canon of work that I've been working on for so long, I've always been writing about class and race. And there's so many different ways to hit it um, that I'm not too worried about those things. Um, Yeah, I would love for people to know when I pick up this author, I'm going to get touches of class, but also dialogue and humor as well. Yeah. I don't know how much time you spent in the UK before, um, but I wonder if you, again, a huge topic, but in terms of our um, class system and, and the way that race relations work here, do you, are you conscious of, you know, what does that look like from, from the perspective of your experience? It's been very interesting. I think one of the key things that stands out is the issue of health insurance in the States, which I also see as an act of racism in many parts because most domestic workers are people of color and they don't have health insurance. Um, and so that's been a huge difference in talking to people from London. Um, There's a lot of questions about like, is this scary? How do you do this? And I appreciate all of those questions. Um, There have been more questions, I guess, about the interracial relationships, I guess, when I'm in London than when I'm in the States. Um, But I think for the most part, what hits hard is the intentions of everyone trying to do the right thing. That seems to be pretty universal. And there's an epic graph at the beginning of the book from uneasy street anxieties of affluence how does the kind of research fit in with the with the writing of the novel would you do do you go away and do loads of research before you write or is it just more organic that's a huge part of my process and that book especially was a huge source of inspiration that I read halfway through and I was so inspired by the dialogue that was used by the wealthy families interviewed as they try and do so many things at one time by superficially leveling the playing field, but also encouraging their children to treat everyone the same, but also saying it's good for you to have a really shitty job. And I was so intrigued by, you know, you think it's so good for your children to have a terrible job, but for how long? How long is that okay for your children? How long is that okay for other people? Um, I was so inspired by that book, and it kind of showed me the why instead of the what for this novel. So yeah, uh, research is a huge part of my process, and that's kind of where I'm at right now, which is just reading a lot of nonfiction and the things that my characters are interested in. So in terms of the, another thing that struck me was about the temporal setting of the book. So it's clearly, it's both very much of now in terms of social media, messaging apps, things like that, but it's also tied to specific historical moments, so 2015, 2016. And I was wondering if it was deliberate to do both those things, because I was thinking of a Franston novel where like, there's a whole plot point that hinges on a CD-ROM or something like that, and if you read it now, it's like, you know, it's archaic in uh-huh. that sense. And did you, given that this was a novel about, which had so much of, of contemporary technology that will no doubt change, did you want to stick a peg in the ground and say, this is 2015, this is 2016, like, this is, you know, how things were then, not not floating it in an indeterminate present, as it were. 
Um, it's such a hard line as a writer to really craft the world of a specific time and also try to make your writing timeless that anyone could pick it up and, and understand the themes. Um, but I also think that cultural references really nail certain people at that point. Um, and so I'd rather focus on the now. I think that 2015 was a it had to be then, as the title alludes to as well. The states right now, we constantly say things were so much better before this current administration. And I think that people forget that that's where the Black Lives Matter movement came out of. And it's so funny to me when people say, you know, this this novel is so timely when the story of black domestic care workers is such an old story. It's hundreds of years old. And I would not say things have gotten worse. I think that the years of slavery and domestic labor not being afforded the rights that they should have, I think that those have been more prominent before. I think social media does make them more apparent and the way that we respond or don't respond to them is really interesting. So it's a really hard line to get both sides. And equally with the scene that opens the book, the Mm -hmm. security officer kind of haranguing Amira, you've said that, you know, that sort of behavior is not new. It's not new. I think it's just the filming of it and the easily so quickly being widespread but even in that i personally would not trust the internet with a video of myself either so it's a complicated thing and again in the in the kind of production history of the novel was that scene in from draft one no it wasn't. so when did that come in it came in because um, it's, it's such a powerful set piece and i was wondering whether that when you were thinking and conceiving this was the point of departure or yeah well we'll explain how how that fits in. yeah uh the the cutting draft floor uh journals came first and i showed them to a friend and he said this isn't gonna work and then that's where the grocery store came in and so by the time that i went to the grocery store i knew these characters a bit better and how they would respond and i love a really gripping opening scene that everything else kind of flows from that moment and characters who wouldn't normally meet each other meet each other immediately um, which i'm learning in film too is they want all of those characters presented in the first 10 pages or so so you're killing a lot of birds yeah so it kind of started off as uh, a story of a a white woman and the the black woman who's helping out in mm-hmm. the house and then that kind of became the the anchor exactly yeah did you find it easy to read tool your story in that way or because you already knew the characters was it quite easy to then reshuffle everything and put this big oh no it's all a nightmare it's all terrible it's all super hard um but certain scenes like that scene especially there's so much going on there there were so many rewrites and so much choreography of who would do what when um but i think all of those rewrites are so vital to the story in terms of form, you, you wrote your stories, you've written a novel now. Do you see, you're working on screenplay stuff at this stage, do you see yourself concentrating on, on novels? I mean, would you, would you continue to write short fiction, for instance? Is that something that interests you, or was that a, a kind of apprenticeship to, to working on longer stuff? I think a little bit of both. I really do enjoy short pieces, and they were kind of there for me when the novel things were going poorly. Uh, I think I will write short pieces in the future, but novels definitely have my heart for the most part. You probably, I, it sounds like I've been reading everything about you, but I've <laughs> noticed that uh, you were paid no, no dollars for your first published short story. Oh, for like the first 10, oh, no first dollars. Yeah. And then I moved to Arkansas just to write. And I said, I'm only going to a, a submit to places that pay. And the first one paid me $16. And I was very excited about that. <laughs> 
per hour of work <laughs> yes. is not yeah. a great rate. No. Um, as we're unfortunately coming to the end of our time, what can you tell us about your next novel, which you've alluded to the fact that you're working on it? Yeah, uh, I would say there's a lot of women characters in it as the first one. I don't think I'll ever write anything that doesn't have to deal with class, but I'll say that it has to, that it's based somewhere much warmer than Philadelphia. I'll say that. Okay, Carly, look, thanks for being such a super guest and wishing you all the best with this book and with your future projects. Thank you so much for having me. Hello, it's us again. Uh, We should say that Rachel and I are recording this uh, introduction and uh, ending of the episode uh, remotely via Skype. We're hoping that uh, it will sound seamless and different, but in case it doesn't, this is our, uh, our justification for that. Anyway, Rachel, what did you think of the interview with Carly? Yep, I really enjoyed talking to Kylie. She was very enthusiastic and generous and open about talking about the pros and cons of workshopping a book. Um, and although we didn't quite pin her down on numbers, she was very open to discussing money. So that was that was great. Yeah, I, I enjoyed it as well. Um, always fascinating, as we've had before on the podcast, to talk to someone who is right at the centre of a kind of whirlwind of publicity and... Um, uh, and press coverage about their book, and to see you know to see what that experience is like. Uh, she did us just before the the Daily Show in the US, and yeah, interesting again on um, her experience of creative writing education, which we're now we've looked at from from all sorts of sides, really. So good episode. Um, anyway, this has been Always Take Notes, hosted by me, Simon Aikam, and me, Rachel Lloyd. Our producer is Nicola Keane. Our social media is by Owen Redahan. Our graphic design is by James Edgar, and our score is by Jess Danheiser. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Always Take Notes, on Twitter at Take Notes Always, on Patreon at Always Take Notes, and if you'd like to leave a review on iTunes, please do. Many thanks. Goodbye.